Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of November 24th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Ralston Valley percussionist to play in Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Jack Schwartz, one of two Coloradans, selected for Great American Marching Band by Riley Dunn. For the Arvada Press. Arvada City Council hears update on micro-mobility pilot program. Public Works Director to decide fate of e-scooters in Arvada by Riley Dunn. For the Arvada Press. Santa visits Lakewood for 8th annual mayoral tree lighting. By Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco transcript. Heroic Act emerges from deadly Lakewood fire. By Carol McKinley of the Denver Gazette for the Jeffco transcript. Community Table Accepting Donations for Holiday Food Drive. Arvada-based local nonprofit aims to collect 25,000 pounds of food by December 25th. By Riley Dunn for the Jeffco Transcript. And following up with various articles. Ralston Valley Percussionist to play in Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Jack Schwartz, one of two Coloradans selected for Great American Marching Band, by Riley Dunn. Arvadans tuning into this year's Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade will see a little bit of local representation, as Ralston Valley High School junior Jack Schwartz was selected to play cymbals in the Macy's Great American Marching Band. The Macy's Great American Marching Band is made up of elite high school band members from across the country, with the final lineup selected through an audition process. Of the 189 students participating this year, only two are from Colorado. Shorts, a percussionist, started playing with RVHS Band when he was in 8th grade and has been an instrumental part of their drumline ever since. Kelly Watts, RVHS Director of Instrumental Music, highlighted Schwartz's passion for drumming. I have never had a student who loves playing the drums as much as Jack, Watts said. If he could just come to school to play, I think he would. His love for the activity is infectious and has really helped shape our band here at RVHS. Jack pushes people to want to be their best. He has helped lead this year's band to the highest scoring season in almost 10 years. Watts continued, Band really is a family. It is a safe place where students can thrive in. Jack is just one example. I could not be more excited and prouder to have him in my band and cannot wait to see him march on Thanksgiving. The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade kicks off on November 24th at 9 a.m. on NBC.
Arvada City Council, here's update on micro-mobility pilot program. Public Works Director to Decide Fate of E-Scooters in Arvada by Riley Dunn. Arvada City Council heard an update on the city's micro-mobility pilot program, which concerns the use of rentable e-scooters within city limits, and generally supported extending the pilot program, which has been running since January. The November 14th council meeting was a workshop. No official vote was made. City team members presented their findings of the pilot program for council discussion. The future of the program will be decided by Public Works Director Jacqueline Rhodes. The pilot program expires in January. Bird Scooters has been the city's only vendor since the pilot program began, and the company operates about 58 85 scooters per day in the pilot program service area, which is situated within one square mile around each G-Line RTD stop. Quote, If we are to move forward, I think I would like to see a larger boundary, City Council Member Lauren Simpson said. Kelly Van Bruggen, Arvada's Bike and Pedestrian Coordinator, said that First and last mile connectivity to the G-Line, which was initially the main driver of the project, has not been how folks have been utilizing the scooters. Quote, When the Transportation Advisory Committee first met, they talked about the first last mile connection to transit, Van Bruggen said. Our data is showing that's not necessarily the main reason people are using scooters. It's pretty low. Data from the pilot program collected from January 26th to September 30th shows that there have been 10,177 total trips, averaging 5.8 minutes and a distance of 0.6 miles. Main concerns about the program include scooter parking, underage riders, and rolls around the scooters. 80% of respondents to a city survey agreed or strongly agreed that the e-scooters are improperly parked. The city has purchased five parking racks for the scooters, two of which have been implemented. Council members suggested increased vendor oversight and working with vendors to incentivize proper parking as potential remedies to that issue. Van Bruggen said, Old Town, Arvada is the highest use area, followed by park areas and the Walmart on Ralston Road. Another vendor, Lime, has submitted an application to the city that will likely be in limbo pending Rhodes' decision. Quote, some people are very for it, some people are very against it. City Council Member John Marriott said, I'd recommend another pilot program in injecting some competition. City spokesperson Katie Patterson said that Rhodes will work with Van Bruggen and Manager of Mobility and Planning Infrastructure, John Ferruzzi, on the decision. The trio will weigh back, will weigh, will weigh resident feedback and council feedback as well. Community table accepting donations for holiday food drive. Arvada-based local nonprofit aims to collect twenty-five thousand pounds of food. By December 25th, by Riley Dunn. Arvada-based nonprofit Community Table 
is taking donations for a community-wide food drive that aims to collect 25,000 pounds of food by December 25th for those facing food insecurity. The food drive began on November 14th. Donations of non-perishable food and personal care items can be made at the Apex Center, Arvada Center, King Supers Candelas, PNC Band Westminster, Wheat Ridge City Hall, and Wheat Ridge Recreation Center. Other communities, community entities, including businesses, churches, and local governments are also encouraged to host food drives at their locations as well. The donations will be sorted by volunteers and used to stock Community Tables Arvada storefront, which functions similarly to a grocery store at a fraction of the cost. Last year, the 25 by 25 foot drive food drive collected 25,777 pounds of food for Community Table, which helped replenish the nonprofit's food stock. This year, Community Table President and CEO Sandy Martin said the organization hopes to help the community and educate folks as well. Quote, this year's 25 by 25 food drive kicks off during National Hunger and Homelessness Awareness Week, Martin said, designed to educate the public, draw attention to the problem of poverty, and build up a low base of volunteers and donors for local organizations like us. Community Table is not the only pantry affected by the pandemic. Many other hunger relief agencies have also seen their supply chains decline while the number of hungry families continues to increase, Martin continued. Martin expanded on the impact that supply chain shortages and inflation have had on Community Table. Martin said that in September 2021, Community Table provided food for 1,600 people, while this September the nonprofit provided food for 3,250 people, double the number from last year. Quote, even though the community has generously supported hungry families and us throughout the pandemic and its aftermath, our supply chain has still not returned to pre-pandemic levels, Martin said. Food donations and grocery rescue are just not keeping pace with the increased need. And now with the addition of inflation, we are feeding more families than ever. Martin said that by November 15th, just a day into accepting donations, Community Table had already collected 2,000 pounds of food. Santa visits Lakewood for 8th annual mayoral tree lighting by Andrew Fraley. Santa Claus has come early this year, bringing Lakewood's annual mayoral Christmas tree lighting, Camp Christmas, and a flaming metal owl. It tastes like rainbows, said four-year-old Alexandra Fabian about her treat, ecstatic that Santa had waved to her at the 8th annual tree lighting on November 15th. Lakewood Mayor Adam Paul spoke to the crowd of almost 100 about holiday wishes and community while Lonnie Hansen, the creator of Camp Christmas, spoke on his excitement of this being the opening night of its second year. Four years old in total, Camp Christmas has only been brought into reality the last two years, previously living through his imagination and, more recently, shipped gift boxes, according to Hansen. Hosted at Heritage Lakewood Belmar Park, Hansen described how excited he was that his physical plans for his creation fit almost perfectly 
with the park. He also said that through the 42 years that Lakewood has been hosting Christmas events of some kind, the city has collected some giant decorations that fit right in. It's like collecting Christmas decorations, but in a really big way. Hands and joked. The highlight of the annual tree lighting for Paul is community. Quote, neighbors knowing neighbors. He also points to the annual lighting of the large metal owl, Hin Han, created by Josh Berkmeyer. It's not your traditional mayoral tree lighting, Paul continued. It's a favorite of Lakewood resident Josh G., though, who's come both years now with his wife Lana and one-year-old Lucas. It's kind of weird, but it's cool, he laughed. Camp Christmas is open fully from 4 p.m. to 4 to 9 p.m. 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. November 17th through December 24th. Tickets can be purchased online at denvercenter.org slash tickets dash events slash camp dash Christmas backslash pound sign. Heroic Act Emerges from Deadly Lakewood Fire by Carol McKinley, the Denver Gazette. When a Halloween morning fire broke out in Lakewood's Tiffany Square Apartments, Units 49, 47, and 45 were doomed. When I opened the door, I looked left and there was fire. I looked right and there was fire, said Tevin T. Thomas. It was like hell. I kind of snapped into fight or flight, and it was flight. The second floor on the northwest side of the L-shaped complex was burning so hot and fast, residents had less than 15 minutes to get out. It was 4 a.m. The flames were already in my son's room and started spreading, said Ayansi Hicks, who was also in apartment 49. I panicked and started screaming. Ayansi... 21 said it was luck that she let Thomas crash on her couch Sunday night, if not for his quick thinking. She believes she and her baby boy would not have lived. I panicked and started screaming. The fire was already coming into the living room, she told the Denver Gazette from her aunt's home, where she and 19-month-old Demarion are staying as they wait for assistance. As wood crackled and split, Thomas kicked out a bedroom window and gripped the ledge with his left hand. He held on like a character in an action movie while Hicks put Demarion in the crook of his right arm. Then he let go. Thomas and Demarion fell two stories, bumping off of an old air conditioner unit on the way down and hit the ground on his left side, rolling in a heap of trash and rocks. Demarion, barefoot in a camouflage onesie, cried from the shock of the impact, but was unharmed. It was Ayanse's turn to jump. Standing in Demarion's playpen, she put one foot over the open window and passed out from the flames, falling in her boxer shorts and t-shirt. Quote, T said I had so much smoke coming out of my mouth and my nose I looked like a dragon, she said. Katie Payton, 31, and her 10-year-old daughter were not as fortunate. They died of smoke inhalation, according to their aunt Rochelle Vigil Valdez. A double funeral for them is set for Monday, November 14th at Denver's Assumption Church. 
At least 14 of 32 units suffered fire damage and every resident was displaced. Ten people were injured in the blaze, including a firefighter who suffered smoke inhalation. Ayanse, her son, and Thomas were transported to Lutheran Hospital. The baby developed RSV from smoke inhalation, according to Hicks, and she had bumps and bruises from her own jump to safety. Thomas has cuts on his feet and his, the hand that gripped the ledge is, quote, pretty messed up. Monday, a 12- and 14-year-old had their first appearances in Jefferson County Court for allegedly starting the fire and are facing first-degree murder and arson charges. During the court proceeding, prosecutors said they started the fire because they'd been thrown out of Unit 50, according to the affidavit. Ayanse said she saw the 12-year-old October 16th while she was filming children in the neighborhood playing soccer. Quote, He knew little kids lived in the apartment complex, said Ayanse angrily. I have so many what-ifs, but mostly I'm thankful that T was there to help me and my baby. I wish I could give him everything when I have nothing. Thomas does not have assistance because he was a guest in the apartment that becomes became an inferno. So he is bouncing between relatives and friends. He said he's not a hero. I just feel like I was doing God's will, the 30-year-old said from his car where he is getting by day to day. I just love kids. They are innocent and pure. That's the future. A GoFundMe has been established for Ayanse, her children, her aunt, and their children. This story is reprinted with permission from the Denver Gazette. State to receive $8.3 million under privacy settlement with Google. By Olivia Prinzel, the Colorado Sun. Colorado was expected to receive more than $8.3 million from a settlement reached with Google over accusations that it misled users about its location tracking practices in their settings while continuing to use the collected data to sell ads. The settlement, worth $391.5 million nationwide, marks the largest multi-state attorney general privacy settlement ever. In the U.S., the Colorado Attorney General's office said recently in announcing the deal. Quote, by misleading consumers into believing they could control their location data and privacy, Google violated our consumer protection laws, Attorney General Phil Weiser said in a statement. Today, we are holding them accountable. The violations date back to at least 2014, the Attorney General's office said. The recent settlement caps a nearly four-year investigation prompted by an Associated Press reporting project that revealed that Google collects data through two Google account settings. Location history is, quote, off unless a user turns on the setting, but web and app activity, a separate account setting, is automatically on when users set up a Google account. The state attorneys general claimed that the internet search giants gave a false impression that when users turned off location tracking services, Google was no longer collecting geolocation data from them. 
but through other Google services and apps, Google continued to collect users' history and location data according to the settlement. Under the settlement, Google must show additional information to users when they turn a location-related account setting on or off and make key information about location tracking noticeable for users. Google must also give users detailed information about the type of location data it collects and how it is used. The agreement also limits Google's use and storage of certain types of location information and requires Google account controls to be more user-friendly. 39 other states joined Colorado in the settlement. Colorado used the money received through the settlement for future consumer fraud and antitrust enforcement, consumer education, or public welfare purposes, said Lawrence Pacheco, a spokesperson for the Attorney General's office. The settlement was based on outdated product policies that the company changed years ago. Jose Castaneda, a Google spokesperson spokesman, told The Sun via email. The company has made improvements to policies and plans to add several new features to boost transparency for its users, including the way for users to easily delete their past data. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Early season snow off to good start in high country. Too soon to get excited, but snowpack is 140% of average. By Chris Outcalt, the Colorado Sun. Snowpack on the western slope is off to a good start, but experts caution it's difficult to draw many meaningful conclusions from snow-covered high country peaks this early in the season. It's kind of like leading a football game by a field goal halfway through the first quarter, Jeff Lucas, an independent climate researcher, wrote in an email. As of early November, the statewide snowpack was 140% of the median from 1991 to 2020 and 142% in the Colorado River headwaters area specifically. According to Snowtel data compiled by the Natural Resources Conservation Service, the averages were slightly higher elsewhere on the western slope. Still, there's a long way to go. Typically on November 9th, Colorado is about 8% of the way to achieving statewide median snowpack Lucas said. Right now, the state is at about 12% of the way there, he said. But Lucas cautioned that there's very little correlation between mountain precipitation in October and early November and the final totals across an entire snow season. In about a third of the past 35 years, early season snow totals looked something like they do so far this year, Lucas said. The season-ending snowpack across those 12 years, however, runs the gamut from a handful of average years to a very good 1995 and a dismal 2012. Nevertheless, it's better to have snow on the ground than not, he said. Every little bit helps. Just like a field goal early in the first quarter, he wrote. But it needs to be followed up with a lot more scoring. Given the challenges facing the Colorado River, 
Water managers across the region will be watching the snowpack especially closely this year. More than 40 million people rely on the snow that accumulates high up in the mountains in the Colorado River Basin and then flows into the river and its tributaries. The water is also used to irrigate millions of acres of farmland. However, a series of subpar snow years and dry soil conditions paired with sustained water use has drained the country's two largest reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, and strained the entire Colorado River system. So far this year, the biggest in-state beneficiary of the early season snow has been southwestern Colorado and the San Juan Mountains, a region that has been hard hit by drought and dry soil conditions the past few years. The southwestern part of the state registered 217% of the median snowpack as of November 10th. We're in the best shape we've seen for about five years. It's a good start, for sure, said Ken Curtis, general manager of the Dolores Water Conservancy District, which manages the Dolores Project. In addition to the early snow, a steady pattern of monsoonal rains throughout the summer helped southwestern Colorado quite a bit, Curtis said. Depending on how you feel about trends or odds or statistics, we are looking better, and you might say we're due, Curtis said. In 2021, farmers and ranchers who rely on water from the Dolores Project received a 10% supply. This year, the project operated on a 35% supply. Becky Bollinger, the assistant state climatologist, said it's good to get a head start on snowpack now so that the state is less reliant on big storm after big storm during the heart of the winter. For me, seeing those storms kick off and that we're a little head on snowpack is good, said Bollinger, who is part of Colorado State University's Colorado Climate Center. In general, I feel pretty positive about this. The snow in the high country this week was especially nice, she said, because the next week or so looks like it's going to be drier across the state. However, temperatures are likely to remain cooler, which is good, Bollinger said. What that means is that while the snowpack isn't going to accumulate, it's probably not going to melt in those mid to high elevations, she said. When you have those cold temperatures, it will help support the snowpack that's already there. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. Local voices, it's never too late to save a river. Riders on the range, Becca Lawton. An old river running motto says, Old boaters never die, they just get a little dingy. And some never lose their passion for keeping rivers wild. Consider California's Stanislaus River. In the 1970s, people of all ages and abilities reveled in running its 13 miles of rapids bearing scary names like Widowmaker and Devil's Staircase. Not far from Sacramento and San Francisco, the Limestone Canyon offered renewal and adventure to people nearly year-round. But back in 1944, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation authorized 620-foot-high New Malonis Dam for the stand, though filling it would drown the beloved canyon. Dam construction began in 1966, and spirited opposition grew. 
giving rise to the grassroots organization Friends of the River. Advocates argued that a smaller existing dam could meet needs without drowning the wild stretch of river. Despite actions ranging from citizens' initiatives to lawsuits and even a favorable Supreme Court ruling, new Malonis Dam was built. As water in the reservoir rose in 1979, Friends of the River co-founder Mark Dubois chained himself to bedrock below the high water line to force dam operators to stop filling. 15-year-old Sue Knopp also went to work, quote, rescuing wildlife day and night for two months from flooded trees and islands. But she could not save them all. And Dubois could not hold back the reservoir. The River Canyon and priceless prehistoric and historic cultural sites were inundated. Now, with New Malonis logging its fourth decade of broken promises in water delivery, flood control, and energy production, hundreds of river advocates from the old campaign hope to reclaim the stand. In their teens and 20s back then, and today in their 60s and 70s, they believe the timing has never been better. It's now a matter of, well, of course, says Dubois, vice president of the new nonprofit Restoring the Stanislaus River. National momentum is growing for dam removal and expanding economically and ecologically wise floodplains. Knopp, president and chief investigator, instigator of the new group, has moved her activism into filmmaking. When Mark wanted the Stanislaus story to be told as it should be in pictures, I offered to create a movie about the 1970s fight. Beginning work on the film reawakened their long-held dream of reclaiming the river. So now, members are opposing, uh, proposing a full watershed approach, revegetating reaches of the upper river, removing sections of New Malonis to maintain lower reservoir levels, and working with downstream farmers to protect floodplains. Promoting the, the de promoting the deconstruction of large dams attracts plenty of media attention. Think of the Klamath River in California and Oregon, and the Snake in Columbia Rivers in Washington. Taking down smaller dams receives less fanfare, though some 1,100 small dams have come down in the past 20 years in the United States alone. As California becomes even drier, many people agree that the new Malonis Dam should go. Only 26% full today. The reservoir has been near capacity only five times since first filling. Power production capabilities based on 40 years of inflow data have never been achieved. Even Interior Department engineers admit they'd underestimated the river's drought and demand cycles, quote, by a significant amount. Roy Tennant, a former Stanislaus River guide and now secretary for restoring the Stanislaus River, acknowledges that successful full watershed restoration will, quote, take a ton of work and money, but we have to begin it while we're alive and have the passion to do it. Kevin Wolf, a former river guide organizer for the 1970s campaign and current treasurer of restoring the Stanislaus River, says billion-dollar ballot measures might be what it takes to change the state's water infrastructure, but, quote, 
Big ideas like taking dams down start with small groups of wild-eyed activists moving ideas forward. Dubois, whose civil action in the 1970s inspired many river protection efforts, adds that it's time to, quote, repair the good intentions of the outmoded dam-building era to restore the wild, rich abundance that rivers have always been. As for Knapp, she says, quote, Healing has already begun as both the film and the push to restore the Stanislaus River have come alive. And the river? I have total faith that it will know what to do. Becca Lawton is a contributor to Riders on the Range, ridersontherange.org, an independent nonprofit dedicated to spurring lively conversation about the West. A former Grand Canyon River guide and ranger, she began as a Stanislaus River guide and advocate. The Fading Miracle of Migration, Riders on the Range, Pepper Trail. For the past few weeks, dozens of turkey vultures have been circling on thermals over my house in Oregon, preparing to soar away south into California. Not long ago, I saw a late monarch butterfly passing high overhead, its orange wings incandescent against the blue sky. These are examples of the great migratory movements that enliven the West every spring and fall. The long-distance migrations of seemingly fragile monarch butterflies are among nature's most incredible phenomena. With eastern populations wintering in vast numbers in a tiny refuge in Mexico, and western populations at a few sheltered spots along the California coast. Migration is central to the lives of many wild animals of great public interest and huge economic importance. From salmon to waterfowl to large mammals like pronghorn and elk, just about everybody attuned to the natural world looks forward to some migratory milestone. Whether it's the arrival of the first robin of spring or the beginning of duck hunting season. Thanks to advances in technology and data collection, this is a golden age for research on migration. Radar allows documentation of the magnitude of animals on the move. On a recent night, for example, it was estimated that 5.4 million birds were in the skies over Oregon. The Citizen Science Database, database eBird, combined with advances enabling the detection of signals from lightweight tags attached to migrating animals, have provided migration maps of stunning specificity. For an example, with turkey vultures, go to tinyurl.com slash mtn. D-A-W-T-M. At the same time, we are also coming to understand the many threats to migration. The drastic declines of Pacific salmon are known all too well. Elk and pronghorn face ever-increasing obstacles posed by highways, roads to access and extract fossil fuels and other developments on the landscape. But what's happening to migratory birds really tells the story. Based on many lines of evidence, scientists have concluded that 2.9 billion, yes, billion breeding adult birds have been lost in the United States since the 1970s. That is one-third of the total bird population of the United States. Of that 2.9 billion, 86%, 2.5 billion 
are migratory species. Although declines of birds in the western part of the country are less severe overall than in the east, many of our familiar migrants are showing drastic reductions, including Rufus Hummingbird, down 60%, Common Nighthawk, 58%, Band-tailed Pigeon, 57%, Lewis Woodpecker, 67%, and Evening Grosbeak, 92%. Why is this happening? The loss of habitat is the main problem for many species, especially grassland birds. For example, between 2018 and 2019 alone, 2.6 million acres of grassland in the Great Plains were converted into row crop agriculture. That's an area larger than Yellowstone National Park. Loss of winter habitat in Mexico and Central America also threatens many species. Human constructions from power lines to wind turbines to oil pits increase the dangers of migration for birds. The greatest hazard may seem mundane, but it's ubiquitous. Windows. Collisions with windows are estimated to kill a staggering billion birds in the country each year. Brightly lit skyscrapers are also a menace to songbirds, most migrating at night. Climate change adds to the threats for migratory species, in addition to broad effects like widespread drought in the West and melting permafrost in the Arctic. Climate change can scramble the relationship between migration timing and the availability of food resources. Hungry migrants may arrive in the spring to find that the peak of insect abundance has already passed. Fortunately, there are many things each of us could do to help migrating birds. First, advocate for the preservation of bird habitats and provide your own by planting native fruiting and flowering plants on your land. Second, take steps to reduce bird collisions with your windows. Many solutions are available, including Zen wind curtains, light cords hanging in front of the glass. For DIY instructions and much other information, go to tinyurl.com slash 2HF558NJ. And keep your cats inside, as free-ranging cats take a staggering toll on birds. Finally, support organizations that advocate for birds and their habitats or promote research on migratory birds, such as the National Audubon Society, the American Bird Conservancy, and the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Together, we can save the lives of millions of birds and help ensure that their incredible migratory journey never ends. Pepper Trail is a contributor to Riders on the Range, ridersontherange.org, an independently nonprofit dedicated to spurring lively conversation about the West. He is a naturalist and writer in Oregon. Welcome the holiday season to the Denver area. Coming Attractions by Clark Reader. Happy Thanksgiving to one and all. At this time of year, people are constantly searching for fun ways to explore the metro area and all it has to offer. Maybe you have family and from in from out of town and need to entertain them. Or perhaps you're just looking for an alternative to the typical holiday fair. 
With the following four options as a starting place, I hope you'll find a great way to kick off the season. Return to the Moon at DMNS. With interest in space exploration on the rise all over the world, it is difficult to imagine a more fitting time to take a look back than right now. And that's just what visitors can do at Apollo when we went to the moon, which is running at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, 2001 Colorado Boulevard in Denver through Monday, January 23rd. The exhibit takes visitors back to the space race leading up to the moon landing in 1969 and features more than 100 artifacts from the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's archives, according to provided information. With more than 400,000 individuals contributing to the success of the American space program, there was a huge range of materials to go through for the exhibit. Visitors can explore the development of the Saturn V rocket, Get up close and personal with the Apollo A7L spacesuit and learn just some of the stories behind the people who made it all possible. Find tickets and information on the exhibit at dmns.org. Immerse yourself in the holiday season at the Cherry Creek Holiday Market. One of the great joys of the holiday season is spending time outside with a warm drink, festive atmosphere, and surrounded by great people. For all that and more, you won't want to miss the Cherry Creek Holiday Market. Now in its third year of Fillmore Plaza, 105 Fillmore Street in Denver, the market has built up a reputation as one of the best shopping experiences in the metro area. And it is easy to see why. It features more than 50 vendors including artisan creators who make puzzles, tabletop campfires, and high-quality tea products. Live music Wednesday through Sunday in a top-notch bar program that showcases local companies like The Family Jones and Uncle Tim's Cocktails. Once you add in some beautiful light features, it is difficult to go wrong. The market runs through Saturday, December 24th. All you need to know can be found at CherryCreekHolidayMarket.com. Explore a brewing winter wonderland. Lukey Brewery, 14715 West 64th Avenue, Unit A and B, Ann Arvada, has all manner of activities scheduled for the holiday season. But one of the most appealing must be its Cirque Day Snow Winter Wonderland Wednesday's events. Held from 3 to 9 p.m. on Wednesday, November 30th, December 7th, December 14th, and December 21st, the festivities begin with a cookie decorating kit from Elevated Pastries, which includes six plain sugar cookies in classic holiday shapes, icing, and sprinkles. And from their brewers, serve beer using the Bierstachen tradition. According to provided information, quote, this German process involves heating beer with a hot poker, and caramelizing the complex sugars from the malts forward varieties on tap. Finally, classic holiday movie bingo begins at 6 p.m. There will also be a holiday markets, live holiday music, and even a paint your pet event. Check out Lukey Brew, L-U-K-I Brew.com to get all the details and make your plans. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Wild Pink at Globe Hall. 
Over there, four albums, New York's Wild Pink, have somehow managed to get better with each new record. Their most recent album, ILYSM, Elysm, might be their best yet, and that could very well be because it is their most personal. At 34, lead singer John Ross received a cancer diagnosis that would rock back any person, and he used that experience as the ultimate muse. The resulting album is searching, funny, sad, and expansive, all descriptions that equally apply to the story of a human life. In support of the album, Wild Pink will be performing at the Globe Hall, 4483 Logan Street in Denver. They'll be joined by indie rock folk favorites Trace Mountains and Knuckle Pups. As we head into the final stretch of this year, this is the perfect show to look back at what we've all endured in case a hopeful glance to the coming horizon. Get information and tickets at globehall.com. Clark Reader's Culture on Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at hotmail.com. Take a hop, skip, and a jump into the city for Lindy Hop by Andrew Fraley. In 1928, two black dancers in a dance marathon in Harlem, George Snowden and Maddie Purnell, broke away from each other to throw in some solo freestyling. With that, they started the process creating one of the most popular swing dances ever, Lindy Hop. It obviously spread from Harlem and today exists across the country, including in Denver. The dance, along with swing music itself, has ebbed and flowed in popularity over the last few decades, but the fast-paced swing-outs and stomping beats have held on to Denver, developing a small community that's easy for beginners to start in and experts to explore. I think there's a lot of room for growth to provide many opportunities for people that want to dance, said Kenny Nelson, founder of Swing in Denver, a swing school and local dance party hoster. Nelson himself has experience teaching around the world, but the last eight years he's been teaching Lindy Hop across Denver and hosting social dances from the Mercury Cafe to the Savoy. The current big three places for Lindy Hop in Denver, according to Nelson, have been the Mercury Cafe, the Savoy, and the Turnerin. The Turnverin, as they are what have survived the ebb and flow. Quote, the Mercury Cafe got its start in the 90s when Neo Swing was happening, and they're the one place that remained when everyone else was gone. It kind of all fizzled out, Dustin explained. I mean, it went with the ebb and flow of popular music. The pop bands tried to grab that sound, and it lasted for a bit, but it didn't last. The Mercury Cafe now hosts this teaching and party hosting group of swing nights twice a week, every Tuesday and Sunday evening with... Seth Stifle, teaching many of the classes from beginner to intermediate. The Merc, as it's also called, has a live band almost every Sunday as well. The Turnverein, a 5,280-square-foot ballroom, hosts a broad range of dance classes from many different teachers like Argentine Tango and General Ballroom, but also a free Lindy Hop class at 7 p.m. every Friday and a dance right after. 
Nelson himself found a home at the Savoy near Five Points in the city where he teaches beginner and intermediate classes and hosts a live band and dance on the first Wednesday of every month. Music is, of course, a central aspect. The right variation in tempo, a swinging sound that will convince dancers onto the floor, mixing songs from well-known gems at all harder than it may seem. Nelson himself found a home at the Savoy near Five Points in the city, where he teaches beginner and intermediate classes and hosts a live band and dance on the first Wednesday of every month. Music is, of course, a central aspect. The right variation in tempo, a swinging sound that will convince dancers onto the floor, mixing songs from well-known to gems. All harder than it may seem. Quote, Swing dancing is inevitably tied to the music. Having some music that is really good in swinging and DJs that are paying attention to the dance floor is very crucial for having creative dancing, Nelson said. He describes a talent loss around 2008 and 2012, though, in DJing, dancing, and teaching, but has seen it start improving since 2013. I really feel like in certain areas, live music has stepped up, and it's great. Whereas DJing definitely hasn't come back, Nelson said. He references some of the bands that he's hosted before, like La Pomp, that play swinging tin pan standards and soulful originals, according to their Instagram, putting them in a category, quote, of the new current bands with younger members who are really talented and really hardworking, end quote. In terms of the stability of the scene now, it's hard to tell. Quote, it's kind of hard to get the complete pulse post-pandemic on the scene here. It certainly feels like it's getting more stable, Nelson said, pointing to venues having live music again as a promising step. The dance's history as a black dance is a focus Nelson tries to give when he teaches. Quote, There's been a lot of international conversations around the role of teaching, how we ought to be teaching, and how we can best respect the fact that we are teaching a black dance. How can we best provide solid representation and appreciation for the dance, he said. I still think there's lots of room for improvement there, too. Specifically, the ideal that the dance has a revival is what is pushed back on. As Nelson puts it, quote, it presents a whitewashing of the current popularity of swing dancing, i.e., it paints a picture of an activity saved from extinction by white people rather than a living art form still practiced within black communities. Within Denver, though, it is far from extinction or needing to be saved. Tuesday nights at the Merck, Friday nights at the Turnverin, and Sunday nights back to the Merck again. Lindy Hop is going strong in the city and welcomes beginners, experts, and intermediates all alike. Take a hop, skip, and a jump into the city and see what you can do to the tune of Swing and Tin Pan Standards. And thanks for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.